Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Lords of Limited. My name is Ben Warney, and joining me on the line, not as always, we don't have Ethan Sachs, ladies and gentlemen. We've got special guest Alex Nikolic, aka Court of Calls, filling in for Ethan. Welcome to Lords of Limited, Alex. Ben, how's it going? Been a while. Uh, I'm happy to be here. I'm sad that you know Ethan decided his time on the show had come to an end, but I'll, I'll happily <laughs> fill it in for him. <laughs> yeah, I know it's insane. So this is episode 228, and I just want to take a second to pat ourselves on the back. We made it 227 episodes every single week since we started the podcast with Ethan and I on. Never missed a week, and both of us were always there. That is an impressive streak. That's super impressive. I like for anybody who you know hasn't done content or podcasting or anything like that. That consistency is just you know unheard of, really. <laughs> I mean, when Ethan and I were going to start a podcast, I just literally Googled starting a podcast, and you the two things that you find are like have a good microphone, have good audio quality. And to pick a schedule and stick with it. So we did once a week. And I'm, I'm very proud that we have never missed a week. And even though Ethan is not here, we're continuing to bring you Lords of Limited each and every week. Yeah, yeah. Maybe, maybe one day Ethan will come back decides he likes magic again. No, he, he's, he's only gone for, uh, <laughs> he went to what, uh, Ireland or Scotland for, for a wedding? Europe somewhere, yeah. I don't know. We only talk about magic, not personal things. He'll be back <laughs> next week. <laughs> yeah, so in lieu of Ethan's normal spiel, I'm going to be bringing you all that stuff. So... The episode today, obviously new formats out, Midnight Hunt, and it is gasoline. But before we get into any of that, we've got a little housekeeping to take care of. As always, we want to shout out the Lords of Limited Patreon, patreon.com slash Lords of Limited. That's where you can go if you want to give back to the show. You know, if maybe if we've given you a little bit of value and you want to give back to us, maybe you've won, you know, a few drafts that you wouldn't have won otherwise, or, you know, you've been listening to the show for a couple of years. Join the Patreon at any level gives you access to the Lords of Limited Discord. And as we say every week, best place on the internet for 24-7 limited tech support. Right now, the start of the format's the best time to get on the Discord because everybody's in there trying to break the format together. There's, you know, what's the picks? There's big picture discussions happening you're in the discord alex you know how good it is oh yeah i think that discord is just like the best way to uh learn or get better at magic just the the way that information flows um and the way that discord tends to attract you know really uh smart people people that are good at limited that want to share their experiences you're, you're always going to pick something up uh when you go into the lord's limited discord it's, it's such a great place to be yeah i always use it a ton at the start of the format especially the trophy channels just to see what's winning what types of decks are looking at you know people whose opinions i respect in there there's a lot of good limited grinders that have a lot of ideas that maybe i haven't thought of or ethan hasn't thought of so it's an awesome place to go awesome community and i think one of the best things about it is it's super welcoming too regardless Regardless of your skill level, you know, you're going to ask a question and there are going to be people that are answering you. It's a good community. You know, please come on, check it out. Patreon.com slash Lords Limited. And there's a variety of other tiers as well. And as always, for new patrons, we want to shout them out each and every week. So, Alex, I'm going to need you to join me in welcoming all these folks to the Lords of Limited Discord. We want to shout out John. Calvin. Scott A. Josh. Chemset. Michael D. Stuart M. William. Axiomatic. A.E. Marling. Bovard. Sadie. Ramon, Clark, Kevin L, Matt, Chris, Nicholas, Kevin T, Jeff, Scott S, The Orange Monster, Alex, A.L. Wayner, Ryan, Andrew, Quinn, Drew, Wilson, Carl, Daniel, Mitchell, Big Pone, Trey, and Blue. Thank you, thank you, thank you for all of your support. We cannot say thank you enough. Show is also brought to you by Channel Fireball, channelfireball.com. Best place to go for anything and everything you need, magic related, as well as Pokemon, flesh and blood. They've got it all over there. 
And big news over at CFB is that they're transitioning over to the CFB marketplace at the end of the month. They're no longer selling singles. Rather, they're going to be hosting um, you know, the marketplace for other stores to sell their singles. And to celebrate that, they're going to be having a ton of giveaways throughout the month of October. So starting on October 4th, they're giving away tens of thousands worth of product across all the games that they have on their website. There's going to be several giveaways a day. And to enter, all you need to do is purchase something on the CFB marketplace. And every $10 you spend is going to grant you an entry in October. And if you're interested in that, there's going to be more details at channelfireball.com slash madness. The big kahuna, the big prize at the end of the month, there's going to be a giveaway for a Black Lotus as well as a first edition Charizard. And I know almost nothing about Pokemon, but I do know (laughs) first edition Charizard is Dalla Dalla Bills. Yeah. You ever have anybody on the schoolyard uh, have one of those, Ben? I did not. I was all magic and I went to a Catholic grade school and I actually got Magic the Gathering banned at my grade school. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, please use code LOL anytime you head over to Channel Fireball to let them know uh, that we pointed you in their direction. Yeah. Also, Ben, I feel like you don't say this often enough, but you and me and Ethan, we write great articles for Channel Fireball that if you want written content, if you're somebody who uh, likes to consume your content that way, you can also go there for that. Yeah, hashtag CFB Pro. So if you want to get that pro content, um, you can sign up for CFB Pro on the Channel Fireball website. And again, use that code LOL. All right, we're going to get into it here. So Innistrad Midnight Hunt, title of the episode is Hunting for Brains. And I think both you and I are on Zombies Hot as the best deck. Big picture, if I were to talk to somebody who hasn't played the format yet, or maybe they've only you know done a draft or two, haven't paid much attention to the content uh, that's been put out so far, my big picture uh, framing device of the format is that blue, black, white as well. The Esper colors are just so much better than red and green in the format, I think. Yeah, for sure. I would completely agree. And I think even more than white, blue and black really stand out as the top two individual colors just through you know power level of commons and depth of card quality. Yeah, they're both just so deep at common and uncommon. Blue, you know, gets his time in the sun after AFR. And, you know, we're, we're going to get into it. But the, the list of blue and black commons that are just, you know, cards you're happy to first and second pick is just is just staggering. Absolutely. And I think if we talk about, you know, just what matters in the format, the thing that stood out to me the most is that you really have to have a game plan both in the draft. I think there's a lot of flexibility and a lot of power to be gained in the draft portion of this format, which is very refreshing after AFR, which felt pretty on rails. And I think, you know, having a game plan in your deck, you know, you want synergy and you want all of your cards working towards the same goal. We are definitely back to drafting a deck, not drafting cards. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, I wonder how this is going to play out as the format goes on. Right now, uh, my big picture thing for doing, you know, successfully navigating a draft has just been to find my way into one of the better decks and one of the Esper decks, or there's a few other decks we're going to talk about. And I feel like unlike some formats, maybe like Kaladesh or uh, maybe original Innistrad, where you had these like little tiny weird synergy pieces, you had to put like these kind of weird looking bad cards in your deck to make these synergies work. I feel like as long as you're just drafting, you know, the good decay cards, the good, you know, disturbed cards, the, the synergies kind of just uh, assemble themselves a lot of the time. You got to be conscious of them for sure, but it's not like you're playing bad cards. It's all it's like all the cards just work so nicely together and you just naturally end up with uh, synergistic decks if you take the good cards. I think that is definitely true. And speaking of Decade, we should talk about that as a mechanic because there was a lot of coming into the format. Is Decade good? How good is it? How much is a 2-2 Decade token worth? And I was pretty hot on Decade coming in, and now I am even higher. It is a slam dunk as a mechanic. Yeah, yeah. It's Decay tokens are really powerful. I think the best way to look at them is as a resource, right? A lot of the cards in blue and black uh, that make the Decay tokens 
they are just good rate cards and then they have a decay token uh, attached to them just you get it for almost for free right so when all your cards are generating this additional resource you really start to take over the game especially because there's a lot of ways to you know capitalize on making a bunch of decay tokens whether that be uh sacrifice outlets or there's those cards that make you tap three creatures to generate some effect i i've just found a lot of success by just taking everything that says decay and putting it in my deck I agree completely. And I think it almost is even better than energy or food in some sort of way because it also affects the board. You know, they can't block, but there's this thing where, you know, once you get two or three decayed zombies that maybe you're using in all those ways you're describing, maybe you're sacrificing them for a card, you know, maybe you're tapping them to pin your opponent, maybe you're tapping them with Scob Wrangler to tap down an opposing threat. But there's also a critical mass point where they do actually kind of block, right? Because if your opponent's life total gets low enough, Yes, your creatures can't actually block, but there's the threat of a crackback, and that forces your opponent to leave back attackers. So in some way, they are kind of playing defense or blocking. Yeah, and that's one of those things that, you know, that's what I love about Magic, that we there's no way we would have predicted that, I think, going into the set, right? But after we've played it out a little bit, that totally happens. There's been so many games where, you know, my blue-black opponent has kind of just sat back, kind of just accrued a bunch of zombies, and I've just kind of gone... You know, maybe I'm the aggressive deck and I've just gone, I, I can't attack them or they're, they're just going to kill me. Like they're so good at turning the corner. And I think in that respect, they're kind of are better than energy because they function like energy, but they also affect the board in a super meaningful way. Yeah. And I think one of the really interesting things too is, you know, before you started playing the set, uh, there was a lot of talk about, well, you know, if your opponent has an X3, the 2-2, two, two, you know, they can just block it. It doesn't really matter. But I found a lot of the time, you know, there's sometimes they just, you know, a lot of the time, actually, they just don't have an X3. So if you want to attack with your zombie to get a death trigger or you want to get in two points before, uh, you know, you sacrifice it to an effect, they just don't have a blocker a lot of the time. Well, and I think the other part of it, too, is if they do have that X3 or that X4 or whatever and they want to block, they have to leave it back to blank your decayed zombie token. Exactly. Big, big threat of activation when you're looking at the turn cycles. Yeah, and I do think, you know, if you're hearing us talk about Decade and it's busted and we're going to be singing the praises of Blue Black all episode, you do have to do a little bit of work to make Decade good, right? Just getting one or two random Decade tokens is not going to do much. You want to have all of your cards as much as possible consistently producing Decade tokens, and you want ways to use those Decade tokens and turn them into cards or use them for effects via Scob Wrangler, things like that. That's the, the tap three creatures to tap an opposing creature. But when you start building around Decade, its power level shoots through the roof. Yeah, I think just as something going forward for any format that's really important to take in card evaluation-wise, and we've seen this you know over and over again with food, with energy, uh, if you played Modern Horizons 2, you'll, you'll know this with all the tokens and treasure, all these like artifact makers, that anything that just generates an additional resource or an, another game piece, another material, is just really powerful. And it, it almost feels, you know, busted. I, I hesitate to use that word. But when you're just generating these, you know, multiple resources from one card, you just start to snowball so quickly. Yeah, it's almost like all of your cards are 1.5 for ones, yeah. which it sort of is. And then if you're turning them into two for ones, even better. Exactly, yeah. So the other big headliner mechanic has been Disturb, which I think has been about as good as we expected, right? Flashback on creatures is pretty powerful. I, I actually am not 100% sure uh, where I stand, where, you know, blue-black being the best deck or white-blue Disturb being the best deck. And part of that is that I think that all of the Disturb creatures are just really, really powerful. They're all, you know, good on the front side and good on the back side. Going into the set, I was kind of thinking, well, you know, they're kind of like, medium on the front side and the back side look you know some of the back sides are a little bit clunky but it, they just play out so well and of course they play out 
know, really well with all the self mill or the discard. It's both an inherently powerful mechanic, just the fact that all of your cards are two for one, and the fact that it's synergistic by, you know, just being an Innistrad side with a bunch of self mill and discard too. Yeah, 100%. I have felt a bit of tension with Disturb, you know, especially when I'm playing against Disturb decks, there is a point where your mana starts to get choked, right? It's not completely unbeatable if you can pressure your opponent that's playing all the Disturb creatures, because a lot of times the, the back half of the Disturb is overcosted for the body that you're getting. So if you can choke their mana, you definitely can turn the corner against the Disturb decks, but it is a very good mechanic and everything you said about, you know, the self-mill synergy, all that sort of stuff is awesome with the mechanic and it's a huge part of why blue white is the top performing deck along with blue black i think yeah the bottleneck when you're playing blue white is almost never cards you have access to just like infinite threats right so i think uh you know prioritizing hitting your land drops to make sure you can you know keep trading off and then bring back uh, the backside of the serp creatures is really important and from the opposite side of the battlefield if you're facing a disturbed deck or you know a blue white deck I wouldn't try to grind them out because I think they're just going to have the inevitability so much of the time. Yeah, mana is the choking point. That's the way to attack the blue-white decks. Exactly. And then the other big new mechanic, which is not really new, but it's a new spin on the werewolf mechanic, has been night and day. I have not been a huge fan of it, just from a mechanic perspective, as well as how it's played out in the games. Right. I think, you know, we're, we're going to, throughout the course of this episode, talk about uh, the werewolves and green red and how it's just been pretty unimpressive. Uh, there's a lot of reasons for it, but one of the reasons is that it's so easy to flip back to daytime. If that's really, you know, if it's really important for your opponent to have nighttime for their werewolves to be big or their, you know, whatever day night card they have, it's just not hard on your turn to flip it back. And I've actually been kind of impressed with the red and white cards that care about when it flips from day to night you know there's uh gavany dawn guard it's the one white white three three with ward one that when it flips from day to night uh, you look at the top four or five cards of your library and you put a creature in your hand there's also the uh the red two mana two two that when it turns from day to night you can discard any number of cards and then draw that number of cards i like both those cards quite a bit so those cards have actually been pretty impressive but the actual cards that care about i would like to stay on the night side those have for the most part felt very underwhelming and i think that's because there's just a lot of good low cmc cards with disturb and a lot of disturb cards that you know can get cast for two mana it's just very easy to double spell when you need to double spell in my experience and I think just besides day and night, the werewolves themselves, I think, just line up really poorly in the format against so many of the blue, black and white cards. They just are vanilla creatures, right? Their power comes from it staying night. And if it doesn't stay night, the blue, black and white cards just two for one and the red and green cards are just one for ones. So I think you just lose on a card advantage access as well as all of the removal somehow just owning werewolves despite them not being that good. Like the, you know, the silver bolt or all of the black removal just embarrasses werewolves. Yeah, it's like, you know, there was uh, in previous Innistrad sets, there was the whole idea where there was a lot of two drop werewolves where, you know, the werewolves could get off to a really fast start and pressure you. There's no common two drop werewolves, so that doesn't happen very often. I think, yeah, like you kind of were alluding to, the common werewolves just aren't good. They're like, you know, on the verge of playable, I would say. But none of them, I think there's about four of them, none of them are cards I'm excited to put in my deck. Like you said, they're just very vanilla. And when my opponent's creatures all draw a card when they come in or, you know, I can cast them when they die, you're fighting just on the wrong axis, basically. When you're the green-red werewolf player, you just don't have the tools to win in this format a lot of the times because your creatures just aren't that aggressive and you're never winning the value game. Have you played red-green yet? Uh, I have, and I've played against it. 
and I was slightly impressed with the deck I cobbled together, but that also had uh, multiple rares in it. So, I mean, <laughs> you know, that, that, <laughs> that deck didn't even feel that good to me. I still haven't played red-green, and my first draft, I drafted blue-black, and I just smashed two or three red-green decks in a row, and I was like, mm, probably not drafting red-green this format. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I had the experience where, you know, uh, my opponent played, you know, Werewolf on two. They had one of the good uncommon ones, and they played a good Werewolf on three, another uncommon one. I was like, oh, man, under the pressure. And then I was like, oh, wait. My cards just completely destroyed them for two. You know, my two mana removal spell kills that. My three mana removal spell kills their next thing. And all right, they're out of sheet threats. Now what are they going to do? Yep. And then you just start playing organ hoarders and win. Yep. <laughs> so other mechanics, you know, Coven, I think, has been largely kind of incidental. You know, green white has been impressive, I think, as an aggro deck. And I think one of the best things about the format is that the aggro decks are good, right? It's not just value train all the time. It's not just disturb cards. It's not blue-black zombies. The aggro decks are real, and they pressure you, and they make you respect them. And I think green-white has been one of the more impressive aggro decks I've seen and played as well. Yeah, I think, you know, if we're looking at the the tippity-top decks of the format, we were talking about the Esper decks, blue-white, blue-black. Uh, I think I think black-white's in there as well. Uh, the next tier down, if you're not drafting those decks, I do think white aggro, white-based aggro specifically, is actually a pretty good deck. All of the, there's a lot of really good white commons that are all pointing towards the same game plan. And that is, you know, when I haven't been able to get into blue and black, that's the lane that I found actually is pretty good. For sure. I think white green and white red take really good advantage of those white aggressive commons. Yep, agree. But when you're playing green-white, it's not necessarily that you're building a coven deck. You know, you're playing green and white aggressive creatures, and coven just kind of intrinsically happens. Although I will say, if you do care about coven and you're putting plus one, plus one counters on things, you do have to kind of plan multiple turns ahead to enable the coven during gameplay. Yeah, I think it's also important to... You know, be aware of when you have exactly enough creatures to enable Coven. You know, your opponent might be able to remove something in response, then really mess up your plan. Or if you're planning to make a big attack and your triggers just don't happen or your 2-2 doesn't actually fly, right? So that's something to be aware of, especially because there's a lot of really good instant speed removal in this format. Right. And then speaking of aggressive decks, Vampires, Red Black Vampires has been pretty impressive as well. And again, it's not like you're drafting Red Black Vampires necessarily. I mean, you kind of are in a sense, but you're drafting Red Black Aggro and all of the good Red and Black aggressive cards are Vampires. And a lot of them power each other up. Yeah, I'm a little colder on this deck, I think, than, you know, we were talking a little bit before the show and you seemed... Uh, like you were like, oh, vampires, I've seen pretty good versions of the deck. And I don't think I hate the deck or anything, but it's not a deck that I'm trying to get into, I guess I would say, where the, the good versions I've seen aren't like the all in, like, you know, all the one drops, all the stingers and all the, the two drops that, uh, you know, get in for damage to your, your bloodthirst or whatever you want to call it for the vampires. I think they're more just like good black cards, the, you know, whatever few good red cards there are in the format. And then there's some incidental vampire synergies. You know, if you happen to pick up one of the good uncommons, you're like, okay, cool. Like this happens sometimes. I haven't felt it's like all in. You really want to enable, you know, on turn, on turn two, enable your vampire cards. It's kind of just been like good black cards, good red cards kind of sometimes happens. I disagree. And I think we might as well argue about this now. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> I, I have been playing a lot more vampire interlopers than you, it sounds like. So that's the <laughs> one in a black 2-1 flyer that can't block. I think Vampire Interloper is a premium aggressive card in the format, and I think it's really good in red-black vampires. And then those vampires that put counters on cards, if your Vampire Interloper is turning into a 3-2 flyer, a 4-3 flyer over the course of turns, that's big game. Yeah, I don't want to say I don't care about Vampire Interloper, but I kind of don't care about it in a lot of the times I face it. Like, <laughs> I either have 
you know, a really cheap interaction spell that just like, okay, I go, you know, Olivia's Midnight Ambush. That's the negative two, negative two for two mana. Just go, okay, snap that off on turn two. Now your three drop and four drop vampire cards don't work. Or, you know, there's, if I'm playing blue white, I just have access to so many flyers. I can just block it. And, you know, one of my problems with that card is, you know, I, I, you know, I'm certainly one to argue for a good aggressive card. My problem with that card is it just never, ever blocks. And I think that's a really big downside. You might not think that's, you know, something you care about in your aggressive deck. But a lot of times the way that aggressive decks play out is like, you know, you get in with your early creatures and then at some point your two drop, you know, jumps in front of a five, five, buys you some time so you can draw into, you know, a pump spell that'll help you win the game or a removal spell where that just, you know, at a certain point, after a certain point, that card just becomes completely dead. And I don't know, I, I am I'm not a vampire interloper believer myself. <laughs> You'll see the light at some point. Yeah, maybe. Ooh, is, is that a pun, Ben? Are you making puns? <laughs> <laughs> I, I tried. <laughs> <laughs> so one of the other things I think in gameplay that's come up more than I would have expected outside of Blue Red is operating at instant speed. I think it's definitely possible for your deck to care about operating at instant speed quite a bit and you know blue red when i laid out my archetype skeleton it was very obvious you know blue red spells wants to operate at instant speed but even blue black and some of the other blue decks there's a lot of different ways to hold up your mana and it's been impressive yeah i think uh a lot of the time the way that the blue black deck plays out is almost like uh you know a blue black tempo deck like you'd you know to make a constructed analog i know it's blasphemy but uh fairies <laughs> in old uh standard back in you know lauren block or rogues for a more recent comparison where you're really just like you know keeping your opponent a little bit off balance you play an early threat maybe an early flyer um play you know the the one mana one say one vampire interloper could you say <laughs> no no but but that card's not a good card man we're only playing good cards of blue black <laughs> you know like you, you play these cheap threats and uh you know maybe sometimes expensive threats and then after a certain point you kind of develop your board presence and you're just leaving up mana for counter spells or for removal spells bounce spells whatever and you really just get ahead early and stay ahead yeah, I've been very impressed with the counter spells, especially flip the switch. That's the two and a blue instant speed counter target spell unless your opponent pays four and then you're going to make a decayed zombie token. Yeah, it, you know, it's just like we were talking about, right? Like anything that makes an additional resource is just a really powerful card. And of course, you know, the big uh, drawback or the big knock against counter spells in limited is if you don't have other instant speed stuff to do, you just, you know, burned your turn. But there's just so much stuff you can do at instant speed that it, it's almost never like that. You know, you can either cast a removal spell or, you know, there's always something to do with your mana, I find, uh, when you're playing the blue decks. Yeah, this is the most playable Stormrider Spirit has ever been. That's the four and a blue, three, three flash flyer. I played that card in multiple decks already, and it's not been embarrassing. Yeah, no, I totally agree with that. It's so weird, like... I haven't even eaten many creatures with it. You know, a lot of the draw of a flash creature is like, oh, you know, comes down, eats vampire interlopers, you know. But uh, I think that mostly it's just been like the flexibility of being able to cast that is has felt really important. You know, if your opponent doesn't do anything, uh, doesn't play anything that you want to counter. Yeah, for sure. I think, you know, we've talked a lot about the Esper deck so far as top decks in the format. Another deck that I would put in top tier is blue green and specifically blue green self mill. And just the idea of self-mill as card advantage and card selection. So first thing, don't mill your opponents in this format yes. unless you're <laughs> definitely killing them via mill. Like I've had multiple people target me with mill effects and just, you know, puts a disturbed card in my graveyard. I'm like, great, thanks. You know, thanks for drawing me a card opponent. So <laughs> you always want to be milling yourself. Even if you don't personally have any disturber flashback cards, you want to make sure you don't give your opponent theirs. Yeah, I always thought it was, you know, it's always funny. Um, I don't know how much Innistrad flashback you've done on Magic Online, the original Innistrad, but uh, a lot of times what would happen 
is you could tell who was new to the format because they target you with the mill spells, right? And that's just like <laughs> not a thing you want to do in, in the Strahd sets. And, you know, we alluded to this a little earlier, but self mill, a form of synergy in and of itself, I think, for card advantage because of Disturb and things like Flashback. And this blue-green deck that's looping, you know, people have been talking about, well, blue-green is clear the mind. I haven't found that it plays out like clear the mind necessarily or devious cover-up is in the format, right? The two blue-blue counterspell where you can counter a spell and then shuffle five cards back into your library. And if you have two devious cover-ups, you can loop them until your opponent decks, presumably. That's not how the deck plays out in my experience because clear the mind you definitely wanted to deck your opponent and have your deck just be instant speed removal spells and just churn your opponent out of threats in this format from what i've seen in the decks that i've played in my opponents the self mill is more for card selection and card advantage and i think the absolute best versions of these decks dump their whole deck in the graveyard and then stack the top of their deck with whatever they need whether it's you know you're finding your bomb rare you're finding your tolovar's hunt master that's the green grave titan card or, you know, you find that removal spell you need to deal with an opposing threat. I think there's a lot to explore here. And I think as blue-black starts to get more contested and blue-white starts to get more contested, these blue-green multicolor graveyard decks are really going to shine. Yeah, you've definitely had more experience uh, with these decks than I have. I haven't played one of these decks yet, and I haven't really seen it much on the other side of the battlefield. Do you think that since counterspells are pretty playable and pretty good in this format, uh, and there's multiples, just two at common and one at uncommon, do you think that makes those type of decks suffer? Those decks that are like trying to, you know, eventually get to this ultimate endgame? I just feel like, you know, in my mind, those decks kind of, they, you know, they do suffer if counterspells are good in the format. Yeah, I could maybe see that being true, you know, if I've actually milled my library and you counter the thing that I'm going to put cards back on top of my library with. But usually by that point in the game, you have a lot of mana. So I think, you know, the the most playable counter spell, I think, is flip the switch. And I think, you know, the the cards that shuffle cards back into your graveyard are pretty cheap. So I think at that point in the game, you can probably get around that sort of thing. But definitely counter spells could throw a wrench. But I mean, that's one archetype, one matchup. And you definitely the decks don't have to mill their whole deck to play the game out. Yeah, I, this is definitely a deck that, you know, maybe I'm living a little bit too much in week one, uh, you know, enamored with with the Esper color pairs, but that's, you know, we're not always going to have our pick of the good Esper decks as the format goes on. So I'm willing to keep my eye on this one. Well, and I think we're going to get to this a little later, so we might as well rip the bandaid off now. I have dove into the 17 land stats. I know, gasp, <laughs> cue, cue shocking gasp, but blue green's one of the best performing color pairs as well, in addition to blue, black and blue, white. Yeah, and you know, in addition to that, one of the things I have played blue green, but not the kind of blue green deck you've been talking about. I've been playing it kind of more, uh, more tempo-y, where I you know just have a bunch of two drops. Um, I really like the the three one harvest tide entry. It's a uh, one and a green for a three one and coven. Uh, if you have coven, it can't be blocked by creatures two power or less this turn. Uh, so like you're just getting a bunch of cheap threats down. You have, uh, you know, the Falcon Abomination, which is the two and a blue 2-2 two, two flyer that comes in with the Decay token. All the blue cards that are interaction, you know, like Flip the Switch or Revenge of the Drowned, which is the uh, three and a blue instant, put something on top of your opponent's library. Or, you know, sorry, they can choose to put it on the top or bottom and then you get a Decay token. Like, all your interaction kind of makes all this, you know, again, material. Or, and a lot of times in these decks, you're just, like, attacking with those zombies. You have, like, incidental milling synergies, so you're, like, kind of getting value. You have your organ hoarders that are coming in, drawing you cards, milling you some. You have your eccentric farmers which is the the two three comes in you mill three you can pick a land up so you're like this like tempo deck that wants to get on board early and then you also can grind because you're just milling your uh, your disturb cards and your flashback cards so that, that's the way i've i've found success in blue green so far yeah i have played that deck once as well and it was very potent 
you know, taking a look at some other things, you know, we talked about the aggro decks, you know, and we used to do, you know, is this a 17 land format? Is this an aggressive <laughs> format? And a lot of those questions are just outdated. Yeah. But you do, and I think this is just true for most formats, need to get on board. I think the aggressive decks are really punishing, and there's also a lot of reach through Decade and, you know, things like Siege Zombie. That's the one in a black 2-2 where you tap three creatures to ping the opponent. There just are ways to push those last few points of damage. Yeah, it's just the world we live in now, right? Like, this should just be your baseline. I, I would say... You know, unless the format is an outlier where it's much slower than normal or much faster than normal, your baseline should just be you need to have, you know, six two drops. You need to have a good curve. You know, a lot of people will come into my Twitch chat and be like, oh, what do you think of the speed of the forum? I'm like, I don't know. It's just it's just how magic is these days, what you're used to in a normal format. Uh, so I don't know. I, I just think that, like you said, it's a, it's a little bit of an outdated question, I'd say. I have found that curve matters a lot. There are a boatload of good four drops running around in the format and i think you know there are a lot of cards that are close in power level and we'll talk about that when we get to some of the top common re-rankings but i think more so than i have in other recent formats i've made a lot of different picks than my pick order that i have in my head even as early as pack two or into pack three based on curve like i need to get two drops or i've already got a bunch of two drops so now i get to take this good four drop that sort of thing yeah totally you know i mean I'm always going to advocate drafting cheap cards, but I think especially when, you know, if you're, you know, your blue-black opponent just goes like, you know, play a Falcon Abomination, make a Flyer and a Decay Zombie, and then on turn five, the cast Diagraph Horde comes down, makes a 3-4 and two Decay Tokens. If you haven't been keeping up for the early turns of the game, you're just dead. Like, <laughs> there's, and this is against blue-black, right? This isn't even like, well, I was going to say it's not even the fastest deck in the format, but I think it kind of plays more, uh, more like an aggro deck than anything, right? But I, I just think that, if you're falling behind at any point in the curve, there's so many decks that can punish you in, in a bunch of different ways. Either that's by just out-tempoing you and attacking you and killing you, or they're going to accrue a bunch of value that you're never going to be able to pressure them enough to come back from. And I think if you fall behind, it really lets decks leverage removal spells. And one of the things that we haven't alluded to yet is, I mean, we did in the crash course, but the removal is as good as we thought, and it is very plentiful. And if you fall behind, that lets your opponent leverage their removal spells to just kill you dead. Yeah, I think that one of the, I don't know, one of the edges you can kind of get in, in this format is just make sure that all of your creatures, or you're the best you can, generate value either on ETB with that eccentric farmer, the you know, tuna green guy that mills three and you can get a uh, land back, or organ hoarder, which, you know, is is not to bury the lead, we I think is the best common in the set. It's the four mana, three and a blue, three, two that comes in, mills three, you get a card uh, from that and put it in your hand. Like if you can just have as many cards that generate uh, value on entry or death or have disturb, that means that if your opponents are drafting just like a pile of removal spells, which, you know, is going to be something that's pretty common because the removal is very plentiful. You know, you can kind of still compete with them because it doesn't matter if they remove all your creatures, you just generated value on a bunch of them. I will say, though, you do need interaction in this format. Yes. You want like at least two or three removal spells in your deck. Yeah, I think so too. I would caution against prioritizing them too highly just because they, you know, there's a lot of it uh, and they're, and most of it is quite good. So you, I don't think, you know, I've stopped first picking the black removal spells, Defenestrate, Olivia's Midnight Ambush, Eaten Alive, all that often, just because I know I'm going to get some form of interaction. There's just, you know, especially in blue, black, the Esper colors, maybe, you know, as the Esper colors become a little more contested, this becomes less true. But I've just found, you know, you do want your three, four, but you don't have to first pick it or anything. It's not like AFR where Grim Bounty was like a slam dunk first pick. Yes, 100%. And one of the questions you've got here, just a big picture, is how do we feel about rate versus synergy? 
format has felt all about synergy to me and much less about rate. And even in that sense, a lot of the good synergistic cards also just happen to have a great rate attached to them. Yeah, that was actually the point I was just going to bring up where it's like, if they're almost intertwined, I actually don't even know if I think about it that way, because it's just like the good cards naturally kind of do both, right? Like they're synergistic uh, with their mechanics or with their color pairs, but also they're just like, yeah, this is a good rate creature that you just want to pick up and put in your deck. Well, I think one of the interesting things about the format for me so far is I haven't really been shocked by that much going into it, but it's still been boatloads of fun because there is so much power and so much synergy that you have a lot of agency in the draft portion about what you want to do and where you want to end up. And then all of those cards that are powerful and synergistic lead to super deep gameplay and a lot of interesting decisions. So it's not just going to be enough to draft the good synergistic cards. You're also going to have to play solid games of magic. Yeah, there's a lot to track in the games, I will say. And I think a lot of, you know, another big edge you can get is just really playing tightly, really thinking through your turns, uh, you know, taking note of everything in the grave, everything on the battlefield. Because, you know, I think one of the common things that happens just psychologically is when there's decay tokens on the battlefield, I've done this and I've been like, oh, they have like five blockers. And then I kind of go, oh, wait, no, two of them are decay tokens. So, you know, I have to subtract those. Or like you were saying before, you have to take into account, okay, well, they can crack me back with a decay token. So I have to be planning multiple turns ahead. You have to make sure that, you know, Arena does a pretty good job of this, but, you know, you have to make sure you're clocking what your opponent has in their graveyard, clocking what, you're, what you have in your graveyard, planning turns ahead. Uh, the games are pretty complex, and I think there is a, a lot uh, to be gained by good gameplay in the format. Yes, many of my losses were winnable, <laughs> I will say so far. <laughs> and I've done a fair amount of winning, so there, there's been a lot of tight games. Yeah. So just to kind of recap deck power rankings, I think blue-black one, blue-white two, very close, and then black-white and blue-green also in top tier. Yes, I, I would agree with that ranking too. And then I think in tier two, uh, that's when I think we're getting into like the white-based aggro. So I think green-white's a pretty good deck. I think red-white's a decent deck too. You know, I think red-black is approaching tier two maybe it's like 2.5 or something like that but you know I i'm willing to uh to keep it in that that uh, tier two for just for now yeah and i think i've been very impressed by green black you know death self mill i think that can function similarly to blue green and you know you can be green black splash blue like salty graveyardish stuff and then blue red really hasn't come together that often i do think if you get the bonkers version of blue red it's very good yes but it's hard to get the bonkers version of blue red and then bottom tier red green werewolves yeah i think blue red is a deck that you're gonna go into a lot if you open up one of the good rares like poppet stitcher which is that mythic two three that whenever you cast instant sorcery you create a decay token and then you know if you have three decay tokens or sorry three tokens of any kind it flips on your upkeep into poppet factory which uh makes your tokens into three threes that's a really good reason to go deep in spells there's the smoldering egg which is like the o4 that turns into a dragon when you catch a bunch of spells um there's a few other uh, at rare not a ton of un uncommon, honestly. I haven't found the uncommons have drawn me in, but I've seen really good versions of the deck on the opposite side of the battlefield. So I would say if you open up one of those rares, it's not crazy to think, okay, I can go down this blue-red path, but I definitely wouldn't go down a blue-red path if you're just taking blue commons and red commons and you're like, well, I guess I'm blue-red. I don't think that's how uh, you want to get into the deck. Right, for sure. I agree. I will say Thermal Alchemist has been busted at uncommon. Yeah, so that's that's totally true. I said there's not uncommons that that uh, pull me in, but Thermal Alchemist is great still. Yeah, that's the one in a red O3 that taps to ping and then untaps when you cast an instant or sorcery. Also very good in red black to turn on all your damage stuff. So let's talk about red green just for a second. Why, why exactly, you know, we kind of alluded to it 
before, but why exactly do you think it's like bottom of the barrel? Very, very bad flavor fail for Innistrad Midnight Hunt, <laughs> but I don't know. What uh what do you what do you think needs to be go right for this deck to have a fighting chance? It's too easy to flip day and night, I think, as the, as an opponent playing against werewolves. And I think the removal's too good for werewolves. And I think if you get pushed into this you need the uncommons and you really need the red green gold uncommon like you want to get out to a fast start pressure your opponent and i think stolen vitality is a huge piece of that deck to give your werewolves plus three plus one and trample to push them through opposing chump blockers yeah i think a card that uh if you do find yourself you know in the werewolf deck you know you opened up tolivar or, or arlen or something and you really want to go down that path Worth noting, actually, if you open up Tar- uh, Tolivar or Arlen, I I actually still wouldn't recommend it. I do think the deck <laughs> is that bad. You should just be taking an Esper card. I, I'm not joking. I I, I picked uh, Infernal Grass, which is the one in the black, destroying a, a creature you lose to life over Tolivar the other day. And my chat just went wild about that. I'm like, no, I think this is just what you're supposed to do, at, at least at this point in the format, for sure. And so if you do find yourself on that path, I think Howl of the Hunt is actually a pretty good uh card for pushing your aggressive creatures through right so this is two and a green for an enchantment aura it's got flash and when it enters the battlefield if the enchanted creature is a wolf or a werewolf untap that creature enchanted creature gets plus two plus two and has vigilance i think this is just you know one of the better tools if you're trying to get your small creatures in not advocating it for for it as a good card but that paired with stolen vitality the the trample trick i think can make the werewolf deck work and, you know, taking a look at the 17 land stats, just to back up what we say, top five in order on 17 lands right now are Azorius, Demir, Simic, Selesnya, and then Orzov in that order. And one of the decks we haven't talked about much is Orzov, Black-White. That, to me, has played out best as an aggro deck with sacrifice synergies. Yeah, I think one of the strengths of Black-White and, you know, Blue-White and Blue-Black, all these decks we're talking about, is... They're actually kind of, it's kind of funny, you know, one of the things that you know, I've said in the past and, you know, you and Ethan say a lot is like, you know, don't be mid-range. But I think these are actually examples of very good mid-range decks where they do actually play that early pressure in a row well, but can also grind. That's just one of the strengths. And Black-White in particular, you get on board early, you play these cheap creatures, uh, Ecstatic Awakener, it's the the one mana, one one that you can pay two and a black to sacrifice a creature. It flips into a four four, you draw a card. That card is just premium in black-white. Uh, Flesh Taker, which is the golden common. This is black-white for a 2-2. Two, two. Uh, and it says whenever you sacrifice a creature, you scry one and you gain a life. And it has one mana, sacrifice a creature. It gets plus two, plus two until end of turn. That card is fantastic. So you, you can pressure early, but you also have all these great grinding tools in you know in the form of stuff like Aesthetic Awakener and uh, stuff like you know Disturbed Creatures and Flashback Spells. Yeah, I owe Ethan a huge apology on Ecstatic Awakener. That card is... <laughs> premium yeah it's a lot of the time because decay tokens are running around it's just you know basically four mana four four draw a card that's that's what it turns out to be because a lot of your like i was saying before a lot of your cards that make decay tokens is kind of just tacked on you get it as a almost free resource right that card is not even just good in orzov it's just good in black decks yeah that's just a good, a good and that's another thing to do with your uh your mana at instant speed too you can keep that up uh keep your sacrifice up and you know keep your counter spell up as well and there's threat of activation in red black decks to get it through blockers. The card just does so much. It blanks opposing removal that's then going to give your opponent, you know, a decayed zombie token. There's just so many small things it does. Yeah, I think a big picture point for the format, and we, we did touch on this a little bit before, but all the cheap cards, like stuff like uh, Static Awakener, there's a bunch of really good cheap two drops. I think you just really, really need to prioritize them just so you're keeping pace with your opponents. Like 
I don't even want to say if you're prioritizing fours and fives because, you know, that's that's not something you often do. But if you're, you know, taking maybe a slightly better three drop over a good two drop or a one drop, I, I think you just end up with clunky hands too often. And your opponents will too often just go, all right, good one drop into good two drop. And you're just going to be behind, uh, you know, you're going to be behind starting as early as turn one. I hear that. So in addition to decks, just a quick look at color power rankings. I think the stats line up with my intuition as well. And I think it's blue and black at the top. I would have black slightly ahead of blue, but I think you could probably make a case for blue as the best color as well, but they're very close. And then there's a gap. And then I think white is in third place. Green, not too far behind white, but a little bit of a gap there. And then a pretty big gap. And then red in fifth place. Yeah, not to split Harris or anything, which is what I'm going to do. <laughs> but I think that white is closer to blue and black than it is to red and green. It's just my take so far. I would buy that for sure. So let's take a look at some individual cards. We've talked a lot about big picture stuff. Overperformers, first and foremost, just anything that makes a decayed zombie token has been better than I thought it was. And I already liked those cards, but it's that good. Yeah, Startle, which is the one in the blue uh, instance, makes a decay zombie. You draw a card and something gets negative two, negative O. The difference between that card and the version from AFR is night and day. Haha, <laughs> very funny, Alex. <laughs> uh, but it's like, <laughs> it's really insane just how much making a decay token bumps that card up in power. Obviously, you know, there's there's contextual synergy and format factors, but that's a card I'm happy to play, you know, one or two of in, in all of my blue decks. Well, and the elephant in the room, or the, the Grave Titan in the room, as it were, Diagraph Horde, four and a black for the three, four, that when it ETBs, you make two decayed zombie tokens, and you get to exile two cards from your opponent's graveyard. That card is just bonkers. I had it as a sleeper in the, the thing I put out in our CFB newsletter on Saturday, and it's just actually, I think, the best black common. Spoilers. Yeah, it's it's Grave Titan plus Mind Rot, right? Because you exile two cards, two flashback or disturb cards from their grave, and you just, you know, your opponent just goes, oh, yeah, that's I had this giant threat in front of me, but also my cards I was planning to cast next turn are now gone. <laughs> yeah, it's closer to Grave Titan than you would think until you've played with it. It actually does feel that board affecting, and I really have to make a conscious effort when my opponent plays one to not feel super far behind, right? Because the, the zombie tokens can't block, but their board just looks so huge after Diagraph Horde comes down. Yeah, you have to resist going towards the concede button because you're like, okay, it's not actually that. It's bad, but it's not that bad. <laughs> yeah, I, but it is very good. Yeah. Falcon Abomination has been great as well. That's the two in a blue for the 2-2 flyer that brings a decayed zombie along with it. Just anything that makes a decayed zombie. Super good. Yeah, another one, too, is Seed Zombie. Plays really well with the Decay Tokens. This is one in a black for a 2-2. Uh, you can tap three untapped creatures. Your opponent loses a life. So pinging them for each turn once you've stabilized the board. Sometimes this just comes down and kills them right away. This this really, you know, it's a two-drop that you can trade off with if you need to or attack with it. And then it grants you inevitability eventually. Speaking of things that want you to tap three creatures, Scob Wrangler oh. is one of the best uncommons in the set. This is one of blue for the 2-1. Tap three untapped creatures you control to tap target creature. Yeah, I don't know if this is going to be true, you know, when this episode comes out, but I, I posted uh, on Saturday or I think on Twitter that I think this is the most underrated card in the set currently, just by the fact that I see a wheel sometimes, you know, even in game, my opponents will kill lesser creatures, <laughs> you know, rather than the Scob Wrangler when that's the really the card they should have killed. You know, with all the, the decay tokens running around, even just like, you know, in blue white, it's pretty good, too, where you just have like a bunch of, you know, you have some of the cheaper uh, disturbed cards that can come back like a uh, Lunark veteran. You have uh, the angler, the the one two comes back as a one two flyer. You can gum up the board with those two. And it's really, really hard to beat a wide board. If this card comes down at parity, 
you're really in trouble because what's going to happen is it comes down, they pass the turn, it goes to your turn, and you go, well, okay, they might tap down my biggest attacker, and that's bad for me. Or if I don't attack, they just go, all right, end of turn, tap three things, my turn, I attack and kill you, right? So, you know, if you've played cube, this plays out a lot closer to opposition than, uh, than you might think. It, it's a real problem. One of the things I hadn't quite internalized about this in Siege Zombie, I knew you could tap themselves and I knew you could use them the turn they came down, but I hadn't quite internalized that if you had six creatures, you could do it twice and just how often you were going to have six or more creatures on the battlefield thanks to decayed zombie tokens. Yeah, yeah, I think I think it's, um you know, a little bit of worst case scenario mentality magic players sometimes have. I saw this a lot during preview season where it's like, well, how often are you going to have three creatures in the battlefield? It's like it's limited, like a lot of the time. It's really not that hard, and especially in this set. It's not that hard. Another busted uncommon, probably the best one in the set, maybe morbid opportunist tuna black for the one three. And whenever a creature dies on either turn for the first time, you get to draw a card. Yeah, this one's really powerful. It just turns all your removal into two for ones. It makes that so, you know, you can immediately cast in a decay token. It just makes combat a nightmare because where, you know, your opponent might have had good blocks or, you know, good trades. They just go, okay, I can't really trade anymore because my opponent's just going to draw a card off of it. Uh, if this isn't the, the mythic uncommon of the set, it's it's definitely up there. And then we've got two sweet build arounds. First up is Ghoulish Procession. That's one on a black and same deal as Morbid Opportunist. Whenever a non-token creature dies on either turn for the first time each turn, you make a decayed zombie token. Yeah, I think this is more of a black white sacrifice card than anything because you can really go crazy. Uh, you know, all your creatures you start, you're sacrificing get you another thing that you can sacrifice. I think it's less of a blue black card. I haven't been a huge fan of it there just because I think it's easier in blue black to convert your decay tokens into just winning the game just you know with your scob wranglers your blue cards you can just attack whereas i think black white grinds a little bit more um and it's really really this is a really really good tool for grinding if you have uh, sacrifice outlets but you know i think in blue black you can play this card too if you have the ecstatic awakeners or you have you know eaten alive which is the uh, single black mana for a sorcery sacrifice a creature you control exile a creature your opponent controls and you can pay you know four additional mana if you don't want to sacrifice a creature i think you can have a sacrifice package in blue black too but i, I found it most at home in, in black white yeah we haven't really talked about the black removal yet eaten alive to me is the best and then there's kind of a gap and then defenestrate and then olivia's midnight hunt for me yeah for what it's worth i think they're all pretty close but if i had to pick one uh pick one pack one it would probably be eaten alive just that one mana is is so important and you know the exile is important as well but, you know, you can really have some tempo positive turns when you just go like, you know, play a four drop. I have a decay token. Maybe that four drop gave me a decay token. And I exile your thing for one mana. Really powerful. Yeah, I think the most important thing about Ghoulish Procession, though, getting back to that card is you want to have agency over when things are dying, whether yes. that's through sacrifice outlets on your side of the battlefield or removal spells that are going to be killing your opponent's creatures. Yeah, and another one that's kind of interesting to talk about is Oministers. So this is an enchantment, tuna blue, when it enters the battlefield, or when you cast a card from your graveyard, you get a 1-1 flyer that can only block creatures with flying. I think, you know, going in, I was pretty tepid on this card. I think most people were, you know, I think a lot of people were kind of thinking, well, it comes in, makes a token, that token can't block. Uh, you know, you kind of think of this kind of card as a long game value card. And if you're trying to accrue value, the it's kind of there's kind of some tension with, well, I'm I want to get to the late game, but these tokens can't block. I think that this isn't a great card in most places. But I do think it's pretty playable in blue-white, where you're really good at gumming up the ground and you're casting a lot of spells from your grave. So I don't think it's a priority there or anything, but it's certainly a playable card if you've got, you know, uh, nine or ten cards that you, you want to cast from your graveyard. 
Sweet. Next up, we've got Lunar Veteran, which has been a huge overperformer as well as a huge stirrer of drama <laughs> on the Twitterverse. <laughs> yeah, Mike Sigrist uh, posted a tweet over the weekend. It said something, you know, something to the effect of, oh, I, I can't believe my opponents keep putting this awful card in their deck. And, uh, you know, a lot of people, Sam Black and uh, a few other people came to the defense of Lunar Veteran as it actually a good card in the format. Ben, you want to talk about, you want to start off our conversation here talking about this one? Yeah, for sure. Well, I think first thing that is the, the buzz about Lunar Veteran is that it's number one white card on 17 lands as, you know, games in hand win rate for the white commons. I'm not quite there on the number one level yet, but I do think it's a very good card in the white decks and it has impressed me. It just does a lot of small things, right? It comes down on turn one. It's a one one for Coven. It pokes in for some damage. It's a sacrifice fodder for things like Ecstatic Awakener. And then, you know, for all your disturb synergies, you know, you cast it out of the graveyard. It triggers things that way. On the backside, when you do disturb it, it's one and a white to make a 1-1 flying spirit token. There's also a lot of ways to put plus one plus one counters on the 1-1 flyer, whether that's through cards like Gavany Silversmith or Homestead Courage. I think that card is just a very synergistic card. You know, it's one of those glue pieces that we talk about in the format where it's just lines up well as far as the cards it interacts with, the cards around it that it makes better. And the incidental life gain is huge. It really is important. It swings races. It makes decayed zombie tokens less potent. You know, certainly once you've flipped it on the backside, because when something leaves the battlefield, you gain a life. Just all of that, I think, adds up to being worth a card. Yeah, I think this is the type of card, and we saw this with Prosperous Innkeeper too in AFR, where it's really hard to wrap your head around just how good this like one mana one one with a minor ability actually is. If you just had an emblem that said, you know, whenever a creature enters the battlefield under your control, you gain a life and you you played out your games with that emblem, you'd win a lot more games than if you didn't have that. And maybe that sounds obvious when putting it in that context, but you're not really paying that much of a card for the card, right? You're not paying that much mana. It's only one mana. And if it dies, you get a little bonus on the backside too. The number of games I've won with that card, and I've put this card in a lot of my blue-white and black-white decks uh, so far, which I think is the best home for it. I don't think it's as much of a red-white or a green-white card, but number of games that I'm sure I wouldn't have won without this card, I would say it's it's approaching half of them. The, you A lot of the time, you just get so far out of the range of your opponent racing you that you just have all the time in the world to you know, carry out your game plan, especially in blue-white, where sometimes you can mill this card Sometimes, you know, you can sacrifice it in, in black, white. It just, like Ben said, pulls so much weight. And I don't think I'm going to be like first picking it or anything, but I think you should definitely prioritize it when you're in those Esper decks. For sure. And I am not on this as the number one white common yet. If I ever end up there, and this is still the number one white common on 17 lands, I will bow to big data. <laughs> to the data overlords, right, Ben? Yes. <laughs> extra, extra, read all about it. Data hater Ben Wernie admits he was wrong. <laughs> <laughs> so next up, we've got Search Party Captain. This is three and a white for a 2-2 when ETBs you draw a card, and it costs one less to cast for each creature you attack with this turn. Jury's still out for me on this card, but I know you're a big fan. Oh, yeah. So this is my pick for the best white common. Um, I just think it's good at all points in the game. You know, on turn three, you can cast it a lot of the time. You send in your two drop. There's turns where I've gone like, all right, well, send in my creatures. I cast it for one mana and then I cast another spell that just feels super, super powerful. They're even good in multiples. There's very little downside for this card. And I felt very good every time I've cast it and not so great whenever my opponents cast it, which, you know, just they, it passes the sniff test, essentially. Yeah, I just don't have much experience with it yet. I've cast it once. I haven't had multiple copies in a deck yet, and I've only played against it a few times, but I've heard good things about it. 
Soul Guide Griff has also been awkwardly annoying. That's the four and a white for a three, four flyer. When it ETBs, you get to exile something from the graveyard. It nabbing a disturb card that you were planning to cast is actually kind of big game. Yeah, it's it's got, you know, it's kind of a mini diagraph horde in that way. It's nowhere near <laughs> as good, uh, but it has that same little, you know, you almost it's almost like you make them discard a card sort of for sure. Yeah, ambitious farmhand is is one that I really want to talk about, actually. So this is the uh, one in a white uncommon. It's a one one. When it enters the battlefield, you can search your land for a planes card. And then if you have coven, you can pay one white white and transform it and transforms to a three three lifelink. I liked this card going into the set. I liked it, you know, when I was drafting it over the weekend, but I didn't expect it to be the highest game in hand win rate uncommon in the set on 17 lands right now. I think that just points towards however good you think this card is, which I think it reads pretty well to a lot of people. They should be prioritizing it even a little bit higher. Card's been very impressive. Uh, next up, we've got Larger Zombie. So this is a card that Ben just laughed at me when he went, you know, we're looking at the show notes here and he goes, did you put this card on the on the list? And I go, yeah, I, I like Larger Zombie. So this is a card that I'm actually, you know, pretty happy to play in my blue-black decks. I think in my best blue-black decks, actually, you know, in, even in blue-white, I'm pretty happy. In my very best versions of these decks, maybe I don't include it, but basically what happens with this card is, you know, you play it early, you you surveil a few turns, and in the mid-game, you just never flood or never get screwed if you need to take your six land drop to cast a six drop or something. It's really, really bad when you are at parity with your opponent and they have this card on the upside of the battlefield because you know they're going to get to the cards they need. So just the fact that it's like one mana pretty impactful i was talking about you need to keep pace early as starting you know starting on turn one uh and it blocks relevant cards i I just think this is a card that i'm not sad to put in my decks and especially in blue white when i can get extra value sometimes it just draws me a card by putting a uh, you know a flashback or disturb card in my graveyard yeah i think one of the things that i missed about this card that i just realized today thanks to talking to twitch chat and i probably should be playing it more i haven't played it yet i didn't realize that you had the option to keep the card on top like i thought it was tap three creatures to definitely mill a card so yeah i could see it being an overperformer for sure especially once you know what the card does <laughs> <laughs> yeah reading reading is important ben <laughs> next up we've got a rise of ants honey mammoth is back in ant form this is four green green for a sorcery make two three three ant tokens and then gain two life and it's got flashback for six green green ben i'm sure you're in love with this card it's just honey mammoth but spread out between two bodies and you can you know it has flashback <laughs> has flashback i really love this card as a finisher in the blue green self mill deck yeah, and like not even so much as a finisher, which it does, you know, a very good job of that, but it just stabilizes so, so well, even better than something like Honey Mammoth or, you know, uh, Hill Giant Herdgorger, because they can't just go removal spell, get that thing off the board, attack you. They have, there's two bodies it makes, right? So I think that this is just a premium card in those late game green decks. And it's so good that I would even play it in like a green white deck pretty happily and take it highly there. Ant Coil Engine? Huh? Ant Coil Engine, yeah, that's not bad. That's not bad. <laughs> All right, next up, we've got Death Bonnet Sprout. This is one I've been super impressed with. So this is uh, one mana, one, one, uncommon. Uh, it's green. And it says, uh, the beginning of your upkeep, you mill a card. And then if you have three or more cards in your graveyard, sorry, three or more creatures in your graveyard, you can transform it. It transforms into a three, three that says the beginning of your, your upkeep, you can exile a creature card from any graveyard. And if you do, you put a plus one, plus one counter on this card. So again, another really cheap, good card this is such a pain if your opponent is playing, you know, any any deck with disturb or flashback cards, comes down, starts growing, starts fueling your graveyard, and just starts, you know, nabbing those cards at your opponent's uh, yard. And I, I've just been really impressed with it, both from my perspective and, like I said, been a real pain when I faced it. 
Yeah, card has been great. I haven't actually seen it in action because the few times my opponents have cast it, I've been fortunate enough to be able to snap off a removal spell against it instantly, which I did. Yeah, this is this is another uh, part of that blue green deck, blue green tempo deck I was talking about, where it kind of plays that Delver role of like, you know, coming down, being a cheap threat that you didn't invest much mana in and then growing. And I think it's even better than that because it also fuels, you know, your, your flashback and disturb stuff that you're going to have in blue green, which is, you know, kind of a, a sub theme of blue green. For sure. Could definitely see that. Next up is Dreadhound. That's four black black for a six six and does a boatload of stuff. When it ETBs, you mill three cards and whenever you mill a creature into your graveyard or a creature dies, each opponent loses one life. This card is absurd. As good as Sir Conrad, if not better. Yeah, it's uh, it's just massive too, right? Like the, the creature sizing in this format is pretty small and six six just n- nothing attacks through it basically. So, you know, on top of just being a great body that stabilizes, you go, I play it. I mill some, ding you for a bit, and often what happens is you just go, all right, I untap on my turn again, I attack you, and you're probably dead, especially with decay tokens, getting that, you know, you're guaranteed uh, a few damage from those. Next up is Evolving Wilds. I've been crazy impressed with this card, just as a piece of fixing to make your mana base slightly better. I also think there's a lot of decks that maybe want to splash, especially green-based decks. And in green-based decks, if you've got Eccentric Farmer, you should just be playing every copy of Evolving Wilds you have, because... If you mill with Eccentric Farmer and you brick and don't mill a land and you've already cracked an Evolving Wilds, you can get back your Evolving Wilds to still get value off your Eccentric Farmer. I think it just does so much work in the format. Yeah, big time agree, especially with that Eccentric Farmer point. You know, Speaking of Twitter discourse, this was another one. I don't know why, but there, the question has come up on a lot on Twitter this weekend. Do you play Evolving Wilds in your two-color decks? And my, my reaction is just almost certainly, right? There's very, very few situations unless I'm like a really low to the ground, uh, you know, all one drop and two drop aggro deck where I can't afford the tap land on turn one. You should almost always play it, especially in like, even in your more aggressive red decks, as long as you don't have a bunch of one drops, you know, the, the baseline is limited mana bases are just really, really bad, right? So anything that you can do to make your mana base better, you should do that. 100%. Last card on the overperformer list is Duel for Dominance. This is the one in a green instant speed fight spell. And then if you have Coven, you get to put a plus one, plus one counter on your creature before it fights. I had this card as like borderline unplayable in my head, and it's been playable to good in green decks. I think, you know, Coven is not that hard to turn on. And a two minute instant speed fight spell that gives you a plus one, plus one counter has been impressive for me and my opponents. I've been casting this card. I don't think you need to pick it highly or anything, but it's definitely playable. Yeah, I, I think uh, where I land on this card is kind of like you were saying before, where you do need some interaction in the format. So if you end up at a spot where, you know, you're blue-green or something, where you didn't end up picking up, uh, you know, Revenge of the Drowns, the, the good blue bounce spell, I think that this is a perfectly serviceable card, but it's certainly cuttable, I think. You know, I've done a lot of deck techs this weekend where people are playing this card and they already had a bunch of other good removal where it's like, you know, if you already have your four removal spells or whatever, not a priority, don't need to play it. But like you were saying, I feel, I feel like it has been a slight overperformer, a little bit better than, you know, trash tier. <laughs> Moving on to the underperformers. I've got Olivia's Midnight Ambush here. Not to say that it's a bad card. This is one in a black for the minus two, minus two. And if it's night, it's minus 13, minus 13. I've just found that the good black decks, black, white, and black, blue, aren't that good at making it night. And if you aren't yourself able to start the day-night cycle... A lot of times this is just two mana minus two minus two instant speed, which is fine, but it's not that impressive. I think you really want to have multiple cards in your deck that can start the day-night cycle before you're really excited about Olivia's Midnight Ambush. Yeah, I think my big thing about Olivia's Midnight Ambush is just that you don't need to prioritize it, just like you don't need to prioritize 
most of the common removal spells because there's just a lot of it. I I do think the card is fine, even if you can't get the day night cycle going, because you know if you can get the day night cycle going and you don't have werewolves in your deck, that probably means that your opponent has played werewolves, right? And you know it, it gets rid of those. And if they don't have werewolves in their deck, you no know, big creatures, this probably kills most things you need to kill. So I, I think it's still a fine card. You know we're not knocking it or anything. It's just you know not uh, again to make that comparison to AFR. It's not like a slam dunk first pick for as a black removal spell. Next up is Moonrager Slash. This is a tuna red for an instant, deal three, and if it's night, costs two less to cast. So this is Nightning Bolt, uh, as it were. <laughs> I, for some reason, cannot see this card in Magic the Gathering packs, and I think that might actually be a hidden benefit in this format. Card has not been that impressive for how well it reads. Yeah, it's it's certainly been a little bit disappointing just as a card itself i don't think it's a bad card i think you know i'm happy to play it in my red decks but i'm not really happy to play red decks <laughs> is the problem right so i think you shouldn't be taking this card early or even in the mid pack i don't think unless you have really really good reasons to go into red i think it's like you know your seventh eighth ninth card in your red decks but my big problem is you just don't want to be taking this card unless you're really pushed into a red deck and i think at this point in the format you just don't need to be pushed into a red deck. You know, we'll see how the format pans out, but it might take a while for people to adjust to the fact that, you know, red isn't that good and, you know, you can just live that Esper life for as long as you can. And maybe we just don't know how to build the red aggressive decks yet and there's going to be something there as blue and black start to get more contested. But as of right now, this reads like a card that should easily pull you into red. And I think that is not the case based on how the cards played out in games as well as red being shallow. Agree. Next up, Shadow Beast Sightings. It's three and a green for a sorcery. You make a 4-4 four, four token on ETB, and then it's got flashback for six and a green. You like this card. I think this card is the epitome of something that just does not fit in the format. So I, I don't, you know, love the card, but I think, you know, when, when I was making my top green commons list, I was like, yeah, I mean, this makes the cut. It's more that green and red don't have great commons. Like, it's just really shallow on the commons. The top two were okay, and this makes the top two for me. But like past that, you're not really happy with the green common. So I, I agree with what you're saying. It's not synergistic. You know, a four four dummy coming down in four. You know, you have to like respect it. But it's never like a huge problem. I, I totally agree with that. So I, I'm not prioritizing this card at all. But you know, I'm happy to put it in my deck if it's you know as my you know fifteenth and eighteenth card or something. Sure, maybe we're closer on it than it seems. Then, but like I think this is begrudgingly playable and i think it's almost never going to lead to winning games of magic like sure you can mill it but seven mana for a four four that you've milled is not going to swing a game of magic i think the format's too tempo oriented and synergistic for that and then just a four mana four four vanilla is also not doing anything this is one not powerful and two not synergistic and i think that's a, a big knock against cards in this format because there are a lot of cards that are both powerful and synergistic yeah, I wonder if I'm a bit happier with the card because I've been playing Green Blue as like a tempo-y deck and you've been playing it a little bit more as that like, you know, grindy late game deck where, you know, I don't think this card is as impactful. Yeah, that makes sense. Next up, we've got Timberland Guide. So this is the one in a green one one that enters the battlefield and you can put a counter on something when it does. I don't know. I just feel like this type of card is kind of past its heyday. You know, the, the two mana card that comes in, puts a counter on something. It's just never, never doing much. There's you know coven synergies or it's kind of like okay that's kind of cute but i don't know i'm i don't prioritize this card and i'd be pretty sad if it made my deck to be honest yeah has not played out well this was in my top commons i think and it it should not have been <laughs> yeah <laughs> next up is heirloom mirror so this is one of black for an artifact uncommon uh it's one mana tap pay a life discard a card draw a card mill a card so you gotta do some rummaging and you put a ritual counter on it 
if it's got three virtual counters, you transform it into a 4-4 flyer with an ability that, you know, puts counters on it if you exile stuff from your opponent's grave. We don't need to talk about this card very much. I just, you know, wanted to talk about it a little bit because I've heard a lot of questions about, oh, how good is this card? The answer is it's not good. It's it's pretty horrendous, actually. <laughs> it's not good. Almost all of the good black commons are just way better than this card. Yeah, you just don't have to stoop as low as putting this card in your deck to enable any synergies. Well, and it's not particularly synergistic. The life loss is a drawback and the token's pretty easy to interact with. You're just doing, you're jumping through a lot of hoops for something that is like a self-contained kind of ostensibly powerful card, but it doesn't even end up being that powerful. Yeah, next up, we've got two classes of cards. The first class of cards here is enchantment-based removal spells. So we've got Candle Trap and Locked in the Cemetery. That's the uh, the white enchantment removal spell and the blue enchantment removal spell. Th- these cards just, you know, we, we, you and me and Ethan and a lot of content creators really are low on these type of cards uh, to start with. And there's always hope that they end up being, you know, playable in the format. And I do think uh, Candle Trap is not, you know, unplayable. It's not terrible. But it's not a card you should at all prioritize. These They're just really underperformers with the amount of sacrifice in the format. Yep, completely agree. The other class of cards I want to talk about is tempo negative card advantage cards. So stuff like Vivisection, stuff like Crawl from the Cellar, which is that the regrowth, or so the black raise that effect. I just don't think you should be playing these cards very often. There's just so much value in the format naturally with your creatures, with your spells. You just don't need to be putting, you know, raw card draw or tempo negative card advantage in your deck. Stuff that doesn't affect the board when so much of the good card advantage already affects the board. This isn't a, you know, a format where you're just like, well, the person with the most cards at the end wins. So it's not even like these cards are high priority in the first place because you have to get on board early. I don't know. I I just don't put these cards in my deck anymore. Amen. And in case we haven't sang its praises enough, we haven't really talked about Organ Hoarder. It's three and a blue for the three, two. When it ETBs, you look at the top three, put one in your hand and the other two in your graveyard. Like that's how you want to draw cards. It's a 3-2 body, gets you card selection, maybe puts some Disturber flashback cards in your graveyard. That card still kind of wheels sometimes on Arena, and I know there's like a lot of drafters on Arena, but stop passing Organ Hoarder, please. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, we have mentioned it a few times, but I think our passing mention of it a few times doesn't quite uh, give enough credit for how good this card is. It's, I would say it is close to as good as Sir Elf's Packmate was in Call Time. Would you say the same? Oh, yeah, for sure. So that moves us on to our top commons and re-ranking these. So moving on to white, I don't really have a super solid list for myself here. Jury's still out for me on white because I think I got it pretty wrong. And I like a lot of the white cards and they play well with each other. And I think a lot of it ultimately ends up being curve dependent. But I'm going to defer to Alex's list here. So what do you got going on, Alex? Yeah, so like I said before, I think that Search Party Captain, which is a four-mana 2-2 that enters the battlefield, draws a card, and costs one less for each creature you attack with each turn. I have that as my number one. I just really like the card. I think it's good in all of the white decks, whether you're, you know, a big grindier like blue-white uh, or blue or black-white or, you know, you're more aggressive. Number two, I have Gavany Tapper. And, you know, just just uh, as a bit of a preface when I'm talking about these white commons, I actually think white commons are the trickiest to rank because I do think they're pretty contextual and they're all pretty close in power level. So my number two is Gavany Trapper. This is the one mana O2 that has uh, two tap and tap target creature. A, a lot of folks I've seen be surprised that this card is pretty good in the format. And I think, you know, it rightfully so. A lot of times when we've seen tappers in the past few years, they've costed either you know two or three mana to get onto the battlefield or their activated ability has been like you know a bit prohibitive the fact that this is a single mana and then two to tap that's just a good rate for a tapper i'm pretty happy playing three of these in my deck a lot of the time especially if my deck does care about coven where you care about that zero power whoa i have had the opposite of experiences with what you're talking about there I, i've been pretty unhappy with multiples oh really that's yeah that's that's 
Interesting. I mean, I can definitely, maybe the, I'm not sure exactly, I don't have the exact explanation right now, but I wonder if there's decks that like don't mind spending the additional mana, you know, in the mid to late part of the game where something like blue white really doesn't want to be spending its mana on a tap effect. It wants to be casting its card out of the yard. So I think maybe in something like black white or green white, especially green white, where your, your game plan is like get creatures on board, then use your mana for doing stuff. Maybe it's a, it's a bit of an overperformer there. That's where I had multiples and I was pretty unhappy with multiple copies on the battlefield in green white because just because it doesn't pressure. Yeah, but it's it, it helps you pressure with your other cards. So it doesn't do it itself. But for a one mana card, it puts your opponent in a bind. It kind of does the decay thing where it's like, well, I can't really attack my opponent because they've got a tapper. So, you know, if I attack them, they tap down my biggest thing on blocks and then they go to their turn, tap down another thing. You know, I, I think it's a, a big threat of activation thing as well. I'd buy that. Yeah, I think I did have some unlucky bad experiences with how the draws lined up with the card, but I just had some different experiences with it than you have. Yeah, that's fair. And then the third one, like I said, these are all kind of up in the air, but there's a bunch of them. It's it's contextual based on your curve, based on what kind of deck you're playing. There's Candle Grove Witch, which is the, the two mana two two that if you have Covenant is flying. There's Gavany Silversmith, which is the uh the two three for four that comes in, puts a counter on two things. Lunark Veteran, the the one mana card that gains life and you know can you can disturb it that we talked about a lot before. I had some folks in Twitch chat be really surprised that Gavany Silversmith wasn't my top common. And I don't know. I, I think it's good, but Bastard's Acolyte, this is not, I would say. I think it's really good in green-white and red-white when you're really being down, but I just don't think it's a priority in a black-white or in blue-white. I think it's fine there, but I'm definitely taking the other white commons above it. Yeah, I, I think it's contextual because I've had some great experiences with Gavany Silversmith. I don't know, but I think the important takeaway here from White is that there are a deep roster of commons that are all very good. You've got yeah. the Silversmith, you've got Candlegrove Witch, you've got Search Party Captain, you've got the Lunark Veteran, that's the 1-1 one, one that dies into the 1-1 one, one Flyer, you've got Gavany Trapper, and it's it's deep, and they all play well together. They all want to be aggressive, I think. So I think if I were forced to put a list, I would go 1 Silversmith, 2 Candlegrove Witch, 3 Lunark Veteran, maybe? But I, I have low confidence in that. Yeah, I think white's the one that we're going to see as the format develops. We'll probably have a better idea. But uh, the like you said, the important thing is they're all pretty close. It's hard to go wrong, basically. <laughs> Moving on to blue. It's a little bit clearer, but also just as deep. Number one, Organ Hoarder. That's three and a blue, three, two. That lets you draw a card out of your top three and put the other two in your graveyard. Number two here, I've got Revenge of the Drowns. This is three and a blue for an instant you put uh your you target one of your opponent's creatures and they choose to put it on the top or the bottom of their library and then you make it a take token ben you were talking to me before the show you, you kind of had falcon abomination in this slot which is the three mana two two make it a take token do you feel strongly about that or i don't know I, I have that as my third one for what it's worth mostly that's a curve consideration for me i'm worried that if i take organ hoarder and revenge of the drown as one and two that my four drop slot can just get super glutted and i have really liked the Falcon Abomination pressuring and making the zombie token as fodder um, coming down on curve. But I could see it going either way. I mean, it's very close. Yeah, that's fair. I've just found revenge to be kind of absurd. Like both on my side, I just bury my opponent by making a body, uh, you know, or a resource and putting their best thing in their library. And then from the opposite side, it's also been backbreaking for me. So I can see them flipping. But for now, I'm going to say revenge is the third. And then Blue is so deep. We've got Bait Hook Angler. We've got Consider as the single blue mana for uh, look at the top card of your library. You can put it in your graveyard or you can draw it. Flip the switch, that counterspell. Like you just go down the list and there's so many blue commons I'm happy about playing. Right. Bait Hook Angler not being in the top three commons as a premium two drop is kind of crazy. It's the one in the blue <laughs> two one that um, when it dies, you can cast it with Disturb one in a blue to make a one two flyer. 
that card is ridiculously good and limited and it's not in the top three commons blue's great yeah and it's not like that card's bad in the format or anything it's just so deep moving on to black here we've got diagraph horde as number one overall the removal spells which you know might be a bit contentious but i really feel that the card is that good and it's that rare scenario where a five drop passes that threshold of i want multiples of these you know i'll play three i'll play four of them the card really is that good so just to recap, Diagraph 4, this is the, the five mana 3-4 that ETBs and makes two decay tokens and you exile two cards from uh, a graveyard. Really, really premium card. It's not quite as good as Organ Hoarder and you know, the top creatures, top of the top creatures in the set, but it's not that far behind. Number two, we've got Eaten Alive. That's black for the sorcery. And as you cast it, you get to choose between two costs. You can either sacrifice a creature or pay an additional three and a black to exile target creature or planeswalker. And then number three here, above the other black removal spells, we've got Ecstatic Awakener. So this is the single black mana 1-1. You can pay two and a black to sacrifice a creature, and you draw a card. It flips into a 4-4. I just think this card, you know, the way I I would put it is I am much more worried about an opponent with three of these in their deck than three, you know, Defenestrates or three uh, Olivia's Midnight Ambushes. I just think this card is really synergistic and just rawly powerful, too. For sure. Moving on to red in the number one slot, we've got Moonrager Slash. That's the Nightning Bolt. Number two, we've got Burn the Accursed, which is the five mana deal five instant that also deals two to the uh, the controller's face and it exiles the creature. Weird for a five mana removal spell to be you know up here, but partially because you know red's not that deep. But also, I've actually been you know fine running the card a copy or two. Yeah, and the number three slot, we've got Ardent Elementalist. That's three and a red for the two one. And when it ETBs, you get a rebuy, an instant, or a sorcery. But red is pretty bad. I would not recommend drafting it. Agree. Moving on to green here, we've got number one, Eccentric Farmer. It's two and a green for a 2-3. ETBs, you mill three, and you take a land from your graveyard, put it in your hand. In the number two slot, I've got Harvest Tide Sentry. That's one and a green for the 3-1 with Coven. And when it attacks with Coven, um, opponents can't block it with a creature power two or less. Number three here, we've got Dawn Heart Rejuvenator. This is the four mana, two, four ETBs. You gain three life and it taps to add one color of any color in your mana pool. Uh, you know, this is kind of the same problem with red where we're kind of, you know, grasping at straws here to get to good green comms. Just not that many in the format. But, you know, a nod to Ben's, uh, you know, blue green deck. I think this card is pretty good if you're planning to go to the late game or you're splashing a little bit. And then just quickly, I think as a nod to the data, going to run down what the top commons are in 17 lands. And a lot of it lines up with what we thought for top commons, which is which is pretty cool. So the data on 17 lands for white, Lunark Veteran 1, Search Party Captain 2, and Gavany Trapper 3. For blue, we've got Organ Hoarder, Revenge of the Drowned, and Falcon Abomination. In black, Diagraph Horde, taking the number one slot for us <laughs> and for the data. Boom, baby. Number two, Ecstatic Awakener, and number three, Defenestrate. Moving on to red, we've got Burn the Accursed in the first place here. In second place, we got Neonates Rush, which is tuna red for an instant. You deal one to a creature, one to that creature's controller, and you draw a card. If you have a vampire, it costs one less. Kind of strange. This is one that, you know, I'm sure Sierkovitz or, you know, one of the other pro data analysts will go deep on explaining exactly why this card might be overperforming uh I, I don't i can't explain it off the bat but it's interesting that it's here and then number three here we've got famished foragers so this is three and a red for a four three when it enters the battlefield if your opponent was dealt damage or if they lost life you add a red 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 to your mana pool and it has two and a red activated ability you can discard a card to draw a card i can explain neonates rush baby you're sleeping on red black vampires <laughs> yeah fair enough then fair enough point taken and lastly, in green, we've got Eccentric Farmer 1, Shadow Beast Sighting 2, and Dawnheart Rejuvenator 3. So a lot of the data does line up with what we thought for top commons. 
Yeah, which is nice. It was nice when, you know, intuition does uh, line up with the early data. And, you know, all the caveats when we're dealing with data that data doesn't, you know, looking at single numbers doesn't tell the full story. Uh, you have to be really careful, really delicate when you're combing through the data. But I would suggest it. You know, I think that uh, it's really helpful, especially early in the format. One of the most uh, telling things and what I use MT lands for the most is just combing through and looking at the outliers, basically looking at cards that are much lower uh, or much higher than you might have thought. That can kind of point you in the right direction and it really highlights cards that, you know, you, you weren't weren't even on your radar or maybe you'd been taking too highly. And more than, you know, this card has a 58% win rate and this one has 59. I think actually trying to find those ones that kind of shock you is uh, is one of the bigger things you can get from looking at the data. Right. Moonrager's Slash is embarrassingly low on 17 <laughs> lands, and that matches up with my experience in the format. Yeah, I think I think that is red dragging down the card a little bit. But yeah, it's it's you know, I'm not surprised. And don't worry, this isn't going to turn into a data podcast anytime soon. <laughs> but, and, and to be clear, what I've done on 17 lands, I spent probably a grand total of five minutes on two separate occasions doing. So you can do a lot quickly in a short amount of time, I think. Yeah, totally. All right, great place to wrap us up. Thank you so much, Alex, for filling in for Ethan. You were amazing, and I'm sure you'll be back guesting on Lords of Limited many times in the future. Oh, yeah, it was, it was a pleasure, Ben, of course. Did I get the job? Am I, am I replacing Ethan? Did you? <laughs> <laughs> I don't think so. We'll have Ethan back next week, but you you are awesome. So uh, if people don't know you, where can they find you? Yeah, for sure. So uh, number one, I mean, I work pretty closely with you and Ethan. I mean, you know, us three talk about uh, limited all the time. And like I said, we write for CFB Pro together. I do the set reviews with Ethan. If you want to find more of me and my content, uh, I'm cord underscore O underscore calls on both Twitch and Twitter. I stream every day, uh, every weekday on Twitch at 3 EST. Uh, I also have my own podcast. I have limited level ups, which you can find everywhere that uh, you find podcasts. It's a podcast that you know, unlike Ben and Ethan, where, you know, you're talking about the format developments week to week, I talk a little bit about that, but a lot of it's focused on like, you know, uh, level up topics, helping you get better at limited in general. Yeah, can confirm limited level ups is great. You should definitely check it out if you like our podcast and you're not currently listening to limited level ups. All right. Thank you so much, Alex, for coming on. Thank you, as always, to Salty Pretzels for our intro and outro music. Make sure you give it a listen. Holy cow. I don't know how to do the spiel without Ethan here. This is terrible. <laughs> uh Shoot us an email at lordslimited at gmail.com if you have any questions. Ethan and I stream uh, twitch.tv slash Mr. Metronome, Mr. Spelled Out, twitch.tv slash Lord Tupperware for Ethan. All right, I'm getting out. That was awkward without Ethan. Thanks, everybody. <laughs> have a great week, and see you all next time on Lords of Limited. First, I want to shout out the Lords of Limited Patreon, uh, patreon.com slash Lords of Limited. What? <clears throat> Good Lord. I hate doing this stuff. I'm so bad at chilling. First, a few housekeeping things. A few housekeeping things before we get into the episode. We shout it out every week. The Discord is... <clears throat> Holy, how does he do this? Oh God, <laughs> it's, so I know, good. he's so good.
the wait did i say patreon or did i say discord good god <laughs> at the start of the format right now it's the best place it's, new formats out that's the best time to get into the discord it's hopping it's popping as ethan always says oh, god i'm not ethan <laughs> i should try to be ethan i'm like in my head now i just want to talk about magic 